0: Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Shane Hall. You're all very welcome. The title of the talk tonight is Philosophy and Leadership, and the subtitle is Lead, Follow, or Get Out of the Way. And if you wonder who said that, it was J.R. Ewing from the Dallas series. He said it to his younger brother. He said it a little bit more aggressively than I've said it to you. but I thought it had interesting possibilities. Now, tonight's talk is about leadership at all levels, at the level of the state, the community or business organisations, at the level of family, and at the level of the individual, i.e. leading yourself. The individual is a state in miniature, and what applies to the state also applies to the individual, and vice versa. Ultimately, leadership is not about others leading us. What about how we lead our lives? Because the human being is a complex organism with many parts, there's a need for leadership within himself. For example, do we recognize being at war with ourselves, where the body is tired and wants to stay in bed, the mind, however, appreciates the need to go to work, and the heart would just like to be free of all responsibilities? So, because of body, mind and heart, there's a need for management of the individual, by the individual. So, there's a need for leadership within. Now, we can be led from outside, or we can lead ourselves. And the true command should come from within, resulting in voluntary and not enforced right action. Self-government is the highest form of government. And this is only possible when man is wise. Otherwise man could be led by pleasure in the body, false opinion in the mind, or selfish emotions in the heart, to live a miserable and insignificant life. So we should remember at all times during the talk, when we are talking about leadership of a state, we are also talking about leadership of an individual by the individual. How we lead our lives in relation to ourselves, family, career, friendship and citizenship. So whenever the content of the talk is about leadership in government, also consider how this applies to me in my life. The challenge tonight will be to consider how might the content of the talk be brought into our lives in a practical and useful way. Now we're first of all going to turn to Plato to see what he says about leadership. He says, we must not entrust the government in your state to anyone because he is rich or because he possesses any other advantage such as strength or stature or again birth. But he who is most obedient to the laws of the state, he shall win the palm. So, for example, we would not allow someone to fly an aeroplane, particularly an aeroplane that we were in, simply because they were rich. Or their father or mother used to fly aeroplanes in the past. Or because they were good-looking. Or because they had charisma. In the same way, people should not rule any entity because of these factors. Plato states that the most important factor for the good leader, is that he or she is obedient to the laws of the state. And a little later on in the same book, he says, And when I call the rulers servants or ministers of the law, I give them this name, not for the sake of novelty, but because I certainly believe that upon such service or ministry depends the well or ill being of the state. For that state in which the law is subject and has no authority, I perceive to be on the highway to ruin. But I see that the state in which the law is above the rulers, and the rulers are the inferiors of the law, has salvation and every blessing which the gods can confer. So, according to Plato, a true leader is under authority, the authority of law. And there's the famous statement by John Acton, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So the question for us is, what law guides all our decisions and actions? What authority do we live under? Now the true leader is a follower, a follower of truth or wisdom. So to follow wisdom, one must be wise. And therefore, there can be no true leadership without wisdom. When people express opinions on important matters, or even more importantly, when we express opinions on important matters, it's a good question to ask. What is my authority for such an opinion? Is it simply what I think? Or what I prefer, is it based on some previous experience? Or does it have the authority of reason, or love, or law, or scripture, or the words of the wise? Now Plato does not simply leave true leadership as one who obeys the laws of the state. He goes further. Marsilio Ficino, in one of his letters, says of Plato, Whilst most men usually congratulate their friends on attaining offices and honours, I pray to God on such occasions, craving divine grace for my friends, for I have learned from Plato that those arts which are concerned with personal welfare may sometimes be adequately directed by human wisdom, but that in the art which looks after the good of the state, the director is God Himself and should be acknowledged as such. I have learned that to God belongs the care of all things, but especially of public and state affairs, and that human wisdom is not the governess, but rather the handmaid and servant of divine governance. And Marsilio Ficino quotes Plato in the letter as saying, Just as without man, one beast cannot be successfully and rightly guided by another beast, so without God, man cannot be guided by man. So we should hear that again. Without God, man cannot be guided by man. Perhaps also we cannot truly guide our lives without God. Now the premier position of leadership in most states is prime minister. And prime means first, and minister means servant. So the prime minister is the first servant of the country. Therefore the leader is the greatest follower of that country. Leadership is a life of following. So again, when we live our lives, what are we following? Leadership is a life of service. In truth, we do not lead to command, but lead to serve. We do not lead to have dominion or power over others, but we lead to care for those that need care. And if we take it at the level of the individual, does the body care for us, or do we care for the body? And the same applies to the mind and the heart. So the greater always cares for the lesser. that's what leadership is about. Whether at the level of the state or the individual, what we are interested in is the true happiness of those we lead. Now, there are different types of leaders, and this is best put, again, by Plato. And again, remember that what applies to the state also applies to us as individuals. There may be democratic states, and there may be democratic people. The democrat could be ruling in us, or the tyrant, or the aristocrat. Now, there are five types of leader, according to Plato, and they are in sequential decline. And you may be surprised to hear later on that democracy is the second lowest form of leadership. It ranks slightly ahead of tyranny. (laughs) (laughs) according to Plato so I think we'd be interested as to why this is so he puts forward excellent arguments as we might imagine now, Plato sets them out in their pure form so I'm going to read a bit from what he said it'll be set out in its pure form now we're not going to see that in the world today you don't see pure aristocracy and you don't see pure democracy What we experience is a mixture of a number of these types of leadership. But he sets them out in their pure form so that they become self-evident. Now, the highest form of leadership is aristocracy. This is not aristocracy as we ordinarily know it. So it's not being Lord this or the Earl of that or Duke so-and-so. And it's not inherited. Aristocracy means the rule of the best the rule of the wise man or woman. So it is ruled by one, and he himself is ruled by one, i.e. by truth itself. Therefore there is no inner turmoil. There are no internal divisions. He is at peace with himself and true to himself. He leads for all, and therefore there is unity in the state. And such a person does not seek leadership, but responds to a request to lead. So that's the highest form of leadership. The second type of leadership is Timocracy. And these rulers are lovers of power and honour. And as individuals, they are ruled by the love of power and honour. According to Plato, they are uncultured but fond of culture. So they're uncultured themselves, but they support the arts and they build fantastic buildings. They are ambitious and contentious. They are despisers of riches when young and fond of it when old. This probably doesn't apply to you now at all. (laughs) I remember the promise I made myself when I was young, that I would be more interested in an honourable life than a rich life. Such a person is obedient to authority. And here we do not have rule by one, but a few. So instead of, say, like a king in the form of the aristocrat ruling us, now we have the rule of the princes. Such a person claims to be a ruler not because he has wisdom, but because he has power. Like a domineering boss or parent. He is not single-minded because both virtue and greed are within him. There is a mixture of the rational and the passionate. And I'm sure that we know sometimes how desire and reason are arguing within ourselves, making it difficult for us to act. We know, I should do this, but I don't really want to. Like, I should bring my mother to buy that wallpaper But the third line's test is on, and I don't want to do it. So do we recognize this inner conflict within ourselves on how to live our lives? Maybe the yearning for more money, and at the same time yearning for the simple life. And just as there is some disunity in the individual, i.e. inner conflict as to how to live his life, there is also some disunity in such a state. So that is democracy. Now we move on to oligarchy. Here the individual is ruled by wealth and the accumulation thereof. In this state the wealthy and not the wise rule. The rich have the power and the poor none. And as riches are honoured virtue is dishonoured. And what is honoured is cultivated And that which has no honour is neglected. So there are two states in the one. There are the rich and the poor. And they are always conspiring against one another. Now this is again something you probably won't recognise, but in such a state, the fondness of money leads to an unwillingness to pay taxes. (laughs) And in such a state... We get the moneylenders for the first time. According to Plato, the creation of moneylending leads to poverty. And it's very interesting. We think moneylending leads to wealth, the creation of wealth. He said it leads to poverty, and with poverty comes criminality. This state is now ruled by a greater number than before. We first of all had the rule of the aristocrat or the wise. Then we had the rule of the princes, the powerful. And now we have the rule of the wealthy. And albeit they're not in the majority, there are more of them. Because of love of wealth, the oligarch only satisfies his necessary appetites. This is a very important point about the oligarch. He's not interested in spending money. He's interested in accumulating money. In the state, there is no care for the poor or needy. And in the individual, what there is is a strictness on himself and others. He subdues his other desires. Now, he suppresses desires, not because they're bad. He does not tame them with reason, but suppresses them because he's afraid to spend his money. Do we recognize this? Suppressing our desires out of fear of spending our money. Now, not overspending, just simply spending. He's at war with himself. And in fact, there are two men, not one, living in the one body. Virtue and desire now actively fighting each other. So things like, I should not overeat, but I love cream cakes. Or I should get up and cut the lawn, but I really want to stay on in bed. He is caught by the rigidity of his own ideas and yet cannot quell his desires. So then this oligarchy now declines to democracy. The love of wealth and the spirit of moderation cannot coexist. So next comes democracy. And here, the care is only for money and the pleasure it buys. Leaders are now elected by lots, i.e. by the common vote. Wisdom is outvoted. We may think that's fantastic, that there is wisdom by lots, but if you were going to have a heart operation, and in the operating theatre there were three plumbers and one heart surgeon, you wouldn't be interested in a vote as to how the heart operation was to take place. You would want leadership by the wise and not by the common vote. But in democracy, we get the common vote. And wisdom is outvoted. Actions are not based on principle, but based on pros and cons. In the democratic state, there's the greatest variety of natures because of the freedom. Therefore, we get multiplicity of religions and multiplicity of political parties. So we get coalitions and compromise government. The law falls into abeyance and there's multiplicity of laws. People break them and still remain free. It's now not possible to administer the law. There's so many of them. So concepts like zero tolerance come in and out of favour, because we just cannot administer the law. And even if we do charge people, we let them out on bail. Leaders are afraid to lead, and it is difficult to lead the people because they are so varied in their demands. Governments form many committees and boards of inquiry to deal with difficult issues. The democratic individual says and does as he likes. He orders for himself his own life as he pleases. For him, all modes of life are equal. All are equal. And because all are equal, there is no respect for institutions, leaders, elders, teachers and the religious. And the democratic man rejects all Advice. All pleasures are alike. What was previously considered a perversion is now permissible. One thing is as good as another. So he does not need any advice. The move is from the school of necessity into the freedom to pursue useless and unnecessary pleasures. Now the democratic individual is always changing. He cannot stick to anything. One minute, drinking excessive alcohol, and the next minute, a water drinker. Plato, 2,500 years ago, predicted this, that there would be excess alcohol and then water drinkers. So he knew that Perrier was going to come into existence. <laughs> <laughs> right? Imagine that. He also predicted, by the way, that people would spend lots of time in the gym. 2,500 years ago. Anyway, this person who one minute is drinking excessively and then becomes a water drinker, he's on the town on the Saturday night and he's in the gym on the Monday. His life is motley and manifold. He's never satisfied and is driven on by narrow desires. Again, this is what Plato says. In the democratic state, all relationships are inverted. Fathers fear sons. Teachers fear students. Leadership is from below. The leader fears the people and the pressure groups. Plato goes on to say that the young and the old become alike. The old are full of pleasantry and gaiety. They loathe to be thought morose or authoritative, particularly by the young. So the old adopt the manners of the young. They go to Rod Stewart concerts when they're 70 right? <laughs> and behave like eejits. Not only do relationships get inverted, but all values get inverted. This is quoting Plato. Listen to what he said two and a half thousand years ago. In democracy, modesty is called silliness. It's silly to be modest. You might have noticed there are assertive courses nowadays. There's no modesty courses, right? Temperance is called unmanliness in the democratic state. Moderation is called meanness. Anarchy is called freedom. Waste, or that which is superfluous, is called magnificence. You know, 21-year-old birthday parties that cost 50 grand. People say magnificent. That sort of thing. Impudence is called courage. So you're courageous when you're cheeky to your parents as a young person. That sort of idea. People chaff impatiently at the least touch of authority. And in the end, they cease to care even for the law. This and the pursuit of personal freedom, in the end, leads to anarchy. Because once law goes out and we get this absolute desire for freedom, then the inevitable consequence is anarchy. So if you want to know what our future is, (laughs) it's anarchy. As we pursue freedom more and more and more, and neglect the laws, it will lead anarchy. But anarchy cannot last too long. And with that, you get the tyrant. Because in the end, we will accept any law, rather than no law. Now the tyrant starts off as a protector, like a Hitler who promises to rebuild the great Germany. So he starts off as a protector, but soon develops into a tyrant. He promises great things to his followers, but eventually rids himself of the best of them. If you remember in the Second World War, we had the Knight of the Long Knives, where Hitler took out the best of those who helped bring him to power. The tyrant is always treacherous and unjust, opposite to the wise man. He is not free himself, but a slave to his desires or ideas. Thus he suffers from infatuation and fixation. As a man possessed, he is blind to reason and love. And he sacrifices everything to get this one thing. And in the end, it destroys him. The tyrant is always destroyed by himself. Now again, just to point out, despite saying that we are Democrats, and even proud, that we are Democrats. The truth of this matter is that a lot of the time we're aristocrats. If we were on a plane and the pilot had a heart attack, we wouldn't give everybody a go for five minutes. <laughs> but we would seek to find who is the one person who knows how to fly this plane. We would seek the best. And in legal matters, we seek the best solicitor or barrister. And in regards medicine and all of these things, we're always seeking the best. Now, what about leading ourselves? Because we've looked at the five types of leader, but what about leading ourselves? And we should remember that all that we've said applies to both us and the state. Now, each of the leader types exist within each one of us. At any point in time, one of them is operating. When aristocracy rules in us, we are ruled by the best in us, either reason or love. Our interest is the truth itself. When the Timocrat rules in us, we are interested in power and honour. We are ruled by what most strongly operates in us, not what is most wise in us. When the oligarch rules in us, we are ruled by wealth. We act on the basis of what we can afford. So we calculate the number of children we will have based on what we can afford. Or we base it on the desire to accumulate. We sacrifice everything for the purpose of wealth. When the democrat rules in us, we are ruled by desires particularly the desire for personal freedom. We are ruled by my rights as opposed to my duties. My right to pursue my personal happiness, irrespective of what happens to others in this world. We are ruled by not what is true and good, but what pleases or displeases me. And we are ruled by pleasure, particularly in excessive caring for the body. What pleases me this week, displeases me next week. And so we are subject to fashions, fads, and rapidly changing tastes. You only have to look at a photograph of yourself 20 years ago, and you can't believe that you thought that that outfit would make you look better. Which you didn't do 20 years ago, by the way, as well, <laughs> right? Because of excessive desires, many of them are in conflict with each other. With so many of them, they can't all face the same direction. So we live a type of life, as I said before, where it's necessary to work out three times a week in a gym to eliminate the effects of other excesses in our lives. We become at war with ourselves, and with the rise of anarchy in us, the tyrant emerges. Here we do not rule, but are rule. We become fanatics or fundamentalists. We are addicted to our ideas. We become fixated or infatuated with small things. So how are we to develop the true aristocrat in us? When well, Shakespeare said, To thine own self be true, and as sure as night follows day, Thou canst not then be false to any man. So put truth first in our lives. And in practical terms, this means always looking to the highest authority. So the body should be ruled by measure and not pleasure. The mind should be ruled by reason and not by thoughts and opinions and prejudices and preferences. And the heart should be ruled by love, and not by feelings of anger and greed and despondency and envy, etc., etc. Measure, reason and love are the highest authorities for the body, mind and heart. All this serves the truth, serves wisdom. It leads to consistency in thought, word and deed. And just in case you're concerned, pleasure, wealth and virtue are all satisfied whilst serving the pursuit of truth. Now, I just want to look at true following for a short period of time, because we said lead, follow, or get out of the way. Now what is true following? Well the first quality of the true follower is the willingness to share the vision of the leader. So you don't have a separate or private vision. You don't know how to drive the car better. You let the other person drive, you share their vision for how to drive the car. Secondly, you have faith in the leader himself. So you entertain no doubts. Otherwise you can't follow. The third thing is obedience. And how you bring about obedience is you recognize that you do not view things from the same viewing point as the person who holds the position of leadership. You don't have to agree with the leader. But you do have to obey. And how you obey is you set aside your own viewing point, recognizing that it's not the same viewing point as his or hers. And the fourth factor is there's a willingness to serve. There was a man on television once that were doing a programme on Martin Luther King Jr. And you could see film clips from the 1960s, this man walking with Martin Luther King Jr. And he was now in his 70s. And when he spoke about Martin Luther King, tears came to his eyes. And he said... I'm just so proud that I walked with that man. So he was a real servant. And there are three levels of service. The first level of service is not doing what you are asked to do. That ranges from an outright refusal to do it, to changing the instruction. So if you ask somebody, would you do something now for me? And they say, in five minutes, I'll do it. That is the lowest level of service. The medium level of service, or the middle level, is where you do what you're asked to do. And the highest level of service is where you anticipate the need. You don't have to be asked, because you're so in touch, you anticipate the need. So if you can't lead, and you won't follow, then you should simply get out of the way. Now, what is real leadership? Now, I'm going to quote the Shankaracharya frequently. And the Shankaracharya is the Indian sage that the school put all its questions to for about 40 years. He spoke frequently about leadership. The context was normally about spiritual leadership, but what he says applies to all aspects of life. The first quality of real leadership is that the person has no interest in holding the position of leader. He's not interested in money nor honor, but he leads out of necessity. As Plato says, He leads out of fear of being ruled by one worse than himself. (laughs) Which is a nice way to take up the position. And again, as Plato says, the state in which the rulers are most reluctant to govern is always the best, and most quietly governed, and the state in which they are most eager, the worst. Frightening, isn't it? there was a fantastic leader was it Havel or Havel from the Czech Republic a marvellous leader I think he became president of the Czech Republic he was absolutely reluctant to lead the second aspect of real leadership is that he has no self-interest he is only the interest of those that he serves and note that it's the interests and not the wishes of those that are served. Therefore, sometimes, in the words of the Shankracharya, he uses tender advice, sometimes a little hard discipline, or sometimes showers of love. As an example of a spiritual leader, this is what the Shankracharya said to the school the first time that the leader of the school met him. And I think that it exemplifies real leadership, particularly spiritual leadership. This is what he said: "It is not my desire which has to be carried out. The desire which has to be helped is that which arises in people looking for the truth, wishing to acquire the divine life and to make efforts in that direction. And so far as I can, I will always be ready. My door is always open to anyone, known or unknown, eastern or western, irrespective of his upbringing or culture, because in fact we all come from the same stock. As long as that desire and the decision are strong, permanent and stable, The help will always be available. That was the promise he made to the school. The third factor is that real leadership means making it easy for others to follow. The Shankaracharya said with regard to spiritual leaders, the leaders have to find out the difficulties, obstacles, misleading alleyways, and clear the way so that those who are similarly disposed may easily go through that particular system and realise the self. They also provide enough knowledge how to surmount the difficulties and transcend the obstacles. The fourth factor is that for there to be leadership within the worldly context, the leader must have both idealism of spirit and action. And again, the Shankracharya said, men with responsibility have some idealism and they use this knowledge to uplift the community and nation to progress and prosperity. Their spiritual knowledge and understanding provides them with simplicity, precision and speed in all their activities. Whatever is their volition or vocation, the simplicity of their approach to any problem The precision and resolution of their work and speed with which they accomplish and complete the work in hand brings about success. A man of spiritual knowledge devoid of its practical use is of no consequence, nor is a practical and efficient man without spiritual knowledge. My good wishes are for those who have both idealism of spirit and action. So for there to be true leadership, there must be spiritual knowledge and it must be put into practical use, according to the Shankaracharya. The fifth factor is that real leadership is leadership of all, not of a segment or part of the all, like party politics. Just as true laws are for the good of all and not the good of a particular class. And an example of this type of true leader, I think, is Mandela, who sought to benefit all South Africans. Thus, real leadership means support of all and impartiality towards all. In an individual, all aspects of our being should be cared for. It's easy to neglect or to abuse either the body, the mind or the heart while favouring another aspect of our being. Now imagine the chaos and injustice if there was favouritism in a family. Well, the same applies to a business organisation or a state. The sixth factor is that real leadership means operating at the highest level. Now again, the Shankaracharya said that man can make decisions at five levels. At any one of five levels. So when you're making a decision, you can make it at the level of the individual. So I'm going to have a cup of coffee for myself. can be that. You can make the decision at the level of the family. And normally if you're buying a family home or something like that, ideally it's for the sake of the family. You can make a decision at the level of the state. I've gone a number of times to South Africa and met a number of young people there. And it would warm your heart to meet some of the young people that I met. Because a number of them said to me that they were picking their careers on the basis of what their country needed. So one man said to me that he was going to become a judge because South Africa needed wise and honest judges. I think that's fantastic when a person would choose their career on the basis of the need of their country rather than anything else. So that's the third level, the state. You could make a decision at the level of humanity and you can go beyond that and make a decision at the level of the universe. The only two levels worth operating at in the end are humanity and the universe. Now, what are the qualities of a leader, of a true leader? Well, first of all, he will have mastery of himself. And again, one wise person says, he that would govern others should be the master of himself. Secondly, there should be no difference between the words and the deeds. He must try to eliminate any variation when he finds it. The Shankracharya says, he is not only a store of knowledge, but he embodies experience of the knowledge. The behaviour of leaders must be straightforward and clear. There should be no deception, ambiguity, desire to outwit or incompleteness. And if there is any difference or deception in the words and deeds, the result will be such that words will be lost and deeds, i.e. misdeeds, will be copied. It's like saying to your children, you are never, ever, ever to lie. And when the phone rings, you just tell them, tell that person I'm not in. <laughs> the words are lost, and the misdeeds are copied. If those who follow are to be uplifted, it would be more from what leaders do, and less from what they say. The third quality of a real leader is abundance of energy. And just to say this to you, that Hitler couldn't get out of bed before twelve in the morning. And if he had got out of bed before twelve in the morning, D-day may not have been successful because they couldn't ring him to tell him that the allies were landing until 12 o'clock. so it gave him whatever it was four or five or six hours before he made a decision as to what to do. Anyway, the Shankracharya says a man who is taken to discrimination will be able to come out of this situation, by conserving and producing energy. The discipline and knowledge keep him supplied with extra energies for proper use and multiply his resources. This multiplication of tapping resources and not wasting energy makes them come out of the mob and take leadership. The fourth quality of the true leader is that he makes decisions. He does not procrastinate. The situation is evaluated in the light of true principle, a decision is made, responsibility is accepted for the outcome, and there's a willingness to make mistakes. And he's also not afraid of others making mistakes. The fifth quality of a leader is that he entertains no fears, no doubts. And there's a very nice story told of the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the man who brought TM to the West. And in the 1970s, he put it to a group of his followers in England that he wanted to raise, it was either 25 million or 50 million to build a village in England. Now, 25 or 50 million is a reasonable sum of money nowadays, but in the 70s it was a colossal sum of money. And he talked about what he wanted to use it for, etc., etc., etc. And at the end, when he'd finished speaking, somebody had the temerity to stand up and say, where will the money come from? And the Maharishi said, from where it is now. (laughs) See, there's plenty of money. All you've got to do is move it. You don't actually have to create it. You only have to move it. I don't know whether you know, but before he died, in the last couple of years, he set about a programme to raise £6 billion to build a centre in India. I think, I don't know whether it's true, by the time he died, they know they got up to £2 Which is not bad. It would be helpful if he was around to clear our national debt, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> now, the sixth quality of a leader is... He needs to appreciate this point, that laws are always universal, but their application is always particular. So the leader must have rational ingenuity in order to be able to apply the law intelligently. Sometimes the medicine to be administered is bitter, but the leader must know how to sugarcoat the pill so that it will be taken. And I've used this example before, but I think it was during the First World War. The United Kingdom was obviously at war with Germany and was sending out its men and women in very, very large numbers and sacrificing their lives in colossal numbers. But there was a shortage of oil for England. And the government asked those who were at home in England, or England, Scotland and Wales, I should say, to turn off their lights earlier by going to bed, and to rise earlier during the summer and vice versa in the winter, and thereby save the use of oil. Now, England was sacrificing millions of young men and women, but do you think the people could get out of bed? They couldn't do it at all. So one civil servant had an idea. He said, we'll change the clocks. So he put the clocks back and forward an hour. And that's where it came from. And when he put the clocks back an hour, 50 million people got up an hour earlier (laughs) and went to bed an hour earlier. Fantastic, isn't it? That's rational ingenuity. If you want another nice one, I heard about this with some very polluted river in Germany. One of the major rivers now, but I just can't remember the name of it. There were all sorts of fines, and they trained people to watch out for polluters. But they couldn't get the industries who were using the river and using water from the river to stop polluting the river. And no matter how many people they had watching this situation and how big the fines were, the industries would not change their ways. So one very clever man came up with a very simple solution. He said that the industries could have access to the river. In other words, they could use the water from the river and they could discharge back into the river. But the discharge outlet had to be upriver from the pipe that they were taking the water from the river. And everybody cleaned up their act. Because they didn't want to be taking their own polluted water back into their factories. That's all he did. He changed the sequence of the pipes. And everybody changed their behavior. Well, that's rational ingenuity. The seventh quality of a leader, he leads by example. The least expected of them is to do a little better than those whom they lead. He must present an example of measured life, and his disciplined actions are examples to their sincerity. They should be steadfast, honest, rational, and moral. The eighth factor is the leader has vision. He does not imagine the future. He looks deep into the present moment and sees all the possibilities and potentialities. He has a vision for himself, his family, his country, mankind and the universe. And finally, one of the most essential qualities of a leader is humility. If he has greatness, he must not claim it. He must have nothing to do with pride. Now, how does a leader lead? And one of the leaders of the schools of philosophy once went to the Shankaracharya and put this question to him. What are the fundamental aspects of leadership? And the Shankaracharya said, purity of thought and the availability of enthusiasm to implement those thoughts are the two basic requirements to run any institution. And I presuppose them to be there. There is the third element. All those who seek truth or development and realization of the self and come to you, come only with one vision, and that is to realize their self. You are also there for the same purpose. Thus there should be no difference between you and and anyone else who comes to your school. Your development is their development, and their development is your development. Give them all those opportunities which you would like for your own self. Give everything that you enjoy, yourself. Be one with them. If this is made possible, the natural course will keep all of you together, and you will advance in your work, and those for whom you are responsible will also advance. Equality of opportunity must be provided. If anyone feels the opposite, he will be left behind. So this can be summarised as three factors. First of all, there's purity of thought, which means that the truth is the only thing that matters. Secondly, there's availability of enthusiasm, which means that others are energised by you to carry out the vision. And thirdly, everyone is treated as your own self, so you may not have any friends, and nobody is left behind. Thus there is no criticism. Interestingly enough, Jesus, at the Last Supper, having given all his teaching for three years, and given the highest teaching at the Last Supper, he gave a third commandment to his apostles. And interestingly enough, people think of only the two great commandments, but seem to forget the third one. Now, he gave it to them when they were about to start their mission, if you want to put it like that. The new commandment that he gave them, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Now, if you could imagine 12 men arguing with each other as they set off on their mission, they would have achieved nothing. When people love one another, they can establish a world religion that up to a billion people follow to a greater or lesser degree. In terms of people, we always work with what we have. So we never work against people's natures. If people like to make decisions slowly, let them make decisions their decisions slowly. Don't be clicking your fingers at them and saying, come on, come on. Always work with the nature of the person. You never reject a person as they are, but work with them. Secondly, how does a leader lead? Well, the leader puts forward the ideal, and the ideal is never abandoned, but the job of the leader is to make it practical. Pandit Nehru, the first leader of India, after independence said, We were not great men, but we aspired to great ideals, and this made us into great men. You can't be a great man or you can't be a great leader unless you've got a great ideal. The third aspect of how a leader leads is the leader does not lead from the mountain top. If he tells them what it is like from where he is when they are too far away they may disbelieve him or may be frightened by what he says. So a real leader leads from behind like a shepherd. And it's very interesting that Jesus used that analogy because a shepherd always walks behind his sheep. He's not 500 yards ahead of the sheep saying, come on you lot. Right? Right? You'll have no shape if you do that. (laughs) So what you do is you stay behind the sheep. You set the direction. They set the pace. The sheep always set the pace. And only if they stray too far to the left or to the right do you send the dog out to give them a nip. So you don't try and have trained sheep that walk in single file. You give them plenty of opportunity to move to the left and to the right. You set the fundamental direction. And it's only when one of them stops or wanders too far to the left and to the right that the dog gives the minimum nip necessary to make them move. We don't want any savage sheep on our hands. Okay? And finally, as regards how a leader leads you must win the trust of the people you lead. Without faith in you, they cannot follow you. Do you ever ask somebody for instructions and you seriously doubt the accuracy of the directions you've been given? You just can't follow them. Now, again, there's a wonderful story about Gandhi. I may have the percentage wrong, but it's not that relevant. Quite soon after India became independent and the Indians were obviously ruling themselves one of the politicians came to Gandhi and said the people do not trust us. So Gandhi gave them a piece of very practical advice. He said reduce your salaries to one third of what they are now and do exactly the same job and they will trust you. that's what they did. You might like to tell your TD that story. (laughs) Now, very briefly, I want to just say what is not leading. So the pursuit of ambition, power, gain or fame has no part to play in true leadership. Non-decision making by over-democratisation, i.e. taking the opinions of all into account, or by procrastination in the form of tribunals and inquiries, etc., is not leadership. Sometimes people postpone making a decision by seeking the advice of increasing numbers of people. And all you do is you get a variety of opinions, and you've no energy to do anything. The third aspect that is not leading is preferential treatment of followers. Jobs for the lads, all right? The fourth factor is considering yourself superior. Again, it's very important, this. In this creation, there is equality of being and inequality of function. So never think that you are a superior being to another person, because you're not. You're neither inferior as well. You have equality of being, but there is inequality of function. So a general has more authority than a sergeant. You must always be willing to do whatever you're asking others to do. The fifth factor that's not true leadership is the refusal to delegate. Others need to grow and they grow with responsibility and experience. Without delegation, you become the limit. And the sixth factor is thinking that you can systemize out the need for leadership, so that if you set it all up, you'll be able to withdraw. No matter how good the system is, there's always a need for leadership. And the seventh factor is you must have nothing to do with compromise and expediency. You must never replace true principle. The key is finding the practical application without diluting the principle. Now, the solution for our own lives and the solution for this or any other country is natural aristocracy. And a great Irishman called Edmund Burke once set out how you bring about a natural aristocracy. I.e. how you and I could become natural aristocrats and lead ourselves, and be in a position to really lead others, if called upon. Edmund Burke had a fantastic command of the English language, so it's a little bit sophisticated for our modern ear. But anyway, I'm going to read out what he said. I think it's marvellous. He says, A true natural aristocracy is not a separate interest in the state, or separable from it, It is an essential, integral part of any large body, rightly constituted. It is formed out of a class of legitimate presumptions, which, taken as generalities, must be admitted for actual truths. To be bred in a place of estimation, to see nothing low and sordid from one's infancy, To be taught to respect oneself, to be habituated to the sensorial inspection of the public eye, to look early to public opinion, to stand upon such elevated ground as to be enabled to take a large view of the widespread and infinitely diversified combinations of men and affairs in a large society. To have leisure to read, to reflect, to converse, to be enabled to draw the court and attention of the wise and learned wherever they may be found, to be habituated in armies to command and to obey, to be taught to despise danger in the pursuit of honour and duty to be formed to the greatest degree of vigilance, foresight and circumspection, in a state of things in which no fault is committed with impunity and the slightest mistake draws on the most ruinous consequences, to be led to a guarded and regulated conduct from a sense that you are considered as an instructor of your fellow citizens in their highest concerns and that you act as a reconciler between God and man. To be employed as an administrator of law and justice, and to be thereby amongst the first benefactors of mankind. To be a professor of high science, or of liberal and ingenuous art. To be amongst rich traders, who from their success are presumed to have sharp and vigorous understandings, and to possess the virtues of diligence, order, constancy and regularity, and to have cultivated an habitual regard to commutative justice. These are the circumstances of men that form what I should call a natural aristocracy, without which there is no nation. Men qualified in the manner I have just described, form in nature, as she operates in the common modification of society, the leading, guiding, and governing part. It is the soul to the body, without which the man does not exist. So to conclude, firstly, there is no point in looking for others to lead us to truth. We may get help on the way, but in the end, we must lead ourselves. No one else can do it for us. To lead ourselves is to become wise, to become a natural aristocrat. And secondly, if this country of ours is to play its full part in the world, we must create a natural aristocracy. Everyone in this room has the natural aristocrat residing in them. It must be honoured, it must be fed, and it must be developed. Good company, the words of the wise, and meditation will allow the natural aristocrat to flourish in all of us. And without the development of natural aristocracy, our lives will not be fulfilled And true leadership will not rule this country. Thank you. What questions would you like to ask?
1: I heard all these altruistic ideas, and then I heard rational ingenuity and sweetening the pill to get people to do something that they might otherwise not really want to do. And then I wasn't sure if this was altruistic, you know, in that there was the ideal of truth, there was the down the line sort of wanting the truth, and then there was this deviation from the absolute truth where you sweeten the pill and you do the rational ingenuity like as you said um, the examples of moving the pipe up the stream or obviously the other one where you
0: the clocks back the time the
1: clocks which I actually was amazed to hear because I thought it was to do with the school children going to school (laughs) all my life so maybe you could expand on why it's still okay to do that right if that's okay
0: that's fine To lead properly, you must always meet the follower where the follower is. So, you will find, say, in the teachings of Christ. He spoke his teaching at different levels, depending on who he was speaking to. On certain occasions, he took his disciples up into the mountain and spoke to them. So, he gave the common teaching to the common people, and you want to call it the higher teaching to his inner circle. So it's an act of compassion. It's not manipulation or something like that. It's like with a child. If a child asks you, what is school like? Say a five-year-old comes to you and says, what is school like, mummy? You don't say, well, listen, when you're 16, you're going to face trigonometry and it's going to give you headaches. Because that's too far away from the child. You say, look, you're going to go in and you're going to draw eggs and colour them in, and you'll play games, and this sort of thing. So, it's an act of compassion to meet the follower where they're at. When they become more developed, then you can speak more directly to them. Again, if I can just take from the Bible, at one stage, Jesus said to his disciples, Ye must eat my body and drink my blood. And it says in the Bible, half of those who had followed him up to that point turned away and never followed him again. So they couldn't take it at a very direct level. That's why you got all the parables and all the nice stories. That's the same point. You always look to the capacity of the receiver and pitch it at that capacity. Now, not in an arrogant, superior sort of way but in a way that helps the person to make their move. Again, if you were working with, say, a child, and let's say you brought it to seven times tables, and it couldn't do the seven times tables, and got into great confusion and upset, and said, I'm useless at mathematics, you'd probably go back down to four times tables again. Get it to regain its confidence, and move back up to five and six, and then eventually seven. So that's what you're doing. As a leader, you're encouraging the follower to make the next step. That step might be half the step of a great human being. It doesn't make any difference what step the follower makes, as long as they are making steps. So they may have to be very small steps. Now you could manipulate it, but that's why you want natural aristocracy. You want those who lead in order to care for those who allow them to lead does that make sense yes it does yeah okay yes anybody else you spoke about a
1: natural aristocracy is there any sense that that's a natural or default position that the default leadership would be that style of leadership or does it take work you have to actively seek out a natural aristocracy? Or is the
0: the aristocracy that you speak of, is it natural in itself? Will it come out eventually? It won't come out without development. What Plato advocated in the Republic was that young people were selected at a young age and they were educated and trained to become the future guardians of the state. So it won't happen without education and without upbringing. Say, as a parent, the idea is that you're meant to be a natural aristocrat. You're meant to be a wise parent leading the family. And you're meant to provide that environment in which a natural aristocrat grows. So you provide the best to your children. All the things that Edmund Burke said and more. And what you will find is that if a person is reared well. Natural aristocracy develops in them. You get natural leaders. And you'll find that the real leaders will come from that, because people will want real leaders. But in a democracy, they don't necessarily see that. No, they may not see it. The way that Plato puts it, now he doesn't use these words, but fundamentally... If you're a democratic man, you will elect a democratic leader. You elect your own type. In the end, you get the government or the leaders that you deserve. Now, you might be horrified when you think of the leaders that we have, but basically we get what we deserve. And there's another magnificent point made by Edmund Burke. And again, these are not his precise words, but he says... It has not been known in history that a good man has ruled bad people for any length of time, or a bad man has ruled good people for any length of time. So when you see a tyranny, for example, ruling a country for a long period of time, or a tyrannical wife or mother or a tyrannical husband or father, for a long period of time, you have to look to those who are ruled. You have to look to them. Why are they accepting it? And it is interesting, and these are not great examples, but Iran overthrew the Shah of Iran and then went for a very dominant type of leadership immediately after. Went for exactly the same style of leadership but with different people in office when the Tsar of Russia was killed. The communism that took over was a very dictatorial communism. You go for your own type. So, it could be argued, let's say an aristocratic man or woman emerged in Ireland, we wouldn't be able to handle them, we'd probably crucify them. We wouldn't be able to take them. We would want them to be democratic. Now, if they had rational ingenuity they could, perhaps, persuade us, show that it was for the best. But it would take greatness, if the people are fundamentally democratic, it's going to take greatness to get them to accept natural aristocracy. In the end, it all comes back to you and me, that you and I have to develop as human beings, And that in our spheres of influence, so you say you as father, you as businessman, that you, if you find yourself in a position of leadership, lead wisely. And slowly but surely, it all rises. Thank you. The lady behind.
2: Like you can't really argue with what you propose because it is altruistic and it's holistic and it's excellent. My wife would try now. Well, <laughs> well, one would just wonder how that mentality and body and heart and mind copes when it comes up with what we might call the street, the Machiavellian, the yeah. predatory, the clever. power brokers it probably helps to know it when you see it but in defeating it is there not a need for being as gentle as the lamb but also as wily as the fox which brings you into their game yes and i think that that's what most of us play out those of us that are in the
0: competitive world of business and what I call the street. Okay. Well, the Shankracharya would have a completely different viewing point. What he said is to fight a devil, you don't have to become a devil. At all times you must maintain your standards. Now, however, say you have the devil in front of you, the Machiavellian type of creature, you've got to meet them as a Machiavellian type of creature. And the Shankaracharya told a story from the east which deals with this. And it's about this snake. Do you know the story about the snake? That's
2: not
0: All right. Okay. Well, there's this snake and he's a very bad character. So he's always running after the people of the village and trying to poison them and things like this. And they're all terrified of him. Anyway, a wise man comes by, sees the behavior of the snake and reprimands him for his wicked, yeah. wicked behavior. And tells him that he must not bite people. So the snake really takes this advice on. Sees the goodness in the wise man. And is so influenced. Decides that he's going to reform his ways. So he no longer attacks anybody quite as a mouse as they would say. And slowly but surely the villagers see this. They see this fella has transformed. So the young boys of the village begin to start to throw stones at him, attack him and stick him with a stick and all that. So we now have this bloodied and bruised snake who's really having an awful time of it, but doesn't inject venom into anybody. Anyway, in order to bring this very miserable story to an end, (laughs) the the wise man comes back, as they always do, because nobody ever gets the advice right the first time. So he comes back. He sees the sorry state of the snake and he asks what happened. And the snake said, look, I, I take your advice and look what's happened to me. I'm in bits. And the wise man said to him, I told you not to bite. I didn't tell you not to hiss. All right. So you're allowed hiss, but you can't bite. That's very, very
2: important. Your bluff will be called no. if, if people think you're just hissing
0: and no. that you they have won't no know. teeth. They won't call the bluff. Remember Clint Eastwood and Dirty Harry?
2: <laughs> I meant to watch it the other night. but
0: Yes, I do don't. watch it. Okay. You'll see what the punk did. Okay. It's a very important thing. The Shankar was asked about this. The way Mr. McLaren put it to him. Mr. McLaren was the head of the school worldwide. And he said, there is a fear in the school about... Living consciously. That it's not practical. That you might get exploited. Does so that makes sense? If you turned out to be a saint, you could end up being an exploited saint. Now he said, you can't exploit the conscious. Those who have got higher consciousness than you are more present, more intelligent, more virtuous, more everything. There's a famous battle from the Indian tradition. And the head of the goodies, which were the Pandava brothers, and I'm not sure about the figures. I may not have the absolute proportions correct. I think they either had seven or nine million on their side, and they were led by a man called Yudhishthira. And the other side had 11 million. So it was either seven to 11 or nine to 11. And the guys on the, the good side were very worried about the fact that they were outnumbered. And they spoke to Yudhishthira, who was a man of remarkable virtue. He was known for his remarkable virtue. So the night before the battle, they put it to him, look, might we lose. And he said, our victory is assured because we have virtue on our side. And you must trust virtue. The good will always triumph over the evil. It may take a long time. If you don't trust in goodness or virtue or sticking to what you know to be true, you will capitulate. You will become an expedient person. And when you become an expedient person, most of your followers will leave you. There was no shortage of volunteers for Martin Luther King Jr. There was no shortage of volunteers for Mandela. If you take Mother Teresa as well. There's a waiting list to join her order. It's not exactly the same in other orders. Again, Martin Luther King Jr.'s widow said, If you're willing to serve a cause greater than your own, you'll never be alone. Fantastic, isn't it? You'll never be alone. That's the way it is. Criminals always self-destruct, by the way. They always self-destruct. In the end, the mafia have to take out their own. Because they're evil. Whereas good people unite. So don't become a Machiavellian. The interesting thing is, ask yourself, anybody here like a Machiavellian plumber? (laughs) Or a Machiavellian solicitor, or a Machiavellian anything? Well, we don't want these things even, by the way, the mafia don't want Machiavellian lawyers. They want honest lawyers they can trust. (laughs) So give people what they want. Yes, anybody else? This gentleman here.
3: You're very good. I enjoyed your talk. Thank you. talked a lot about Body, mind, and heart. Never heard body, mind, and soul. Yes. Or does heart mean soul, or does it mean spirit, or both?
0: Right. Well, sorry, first of all, it depends what one means by soul. Plato described soul as every aspect of man that was not body. For him, soul was spirit plus mind. That's the way Plato looked on it. Some people see soul as spirit only. I.e. there's body, mind, heart and let's say spirit. If we mean it like that, if we mean body, mind, heart and spirit then from this talk's point of view, the spirit does not need leading. It is self-reliant. There is no aristocracy, democracy, oligarchy, democracy or tyranny for the spirit. It is free, independent, we call it self-governing, self-reliant. So leadership doesn't apply to the spirit. That's what I would put forward. Thank you. Do you want to ask further?
3: Well, it's difficult because I don't fully understand what soul really means by self. Spirit can be your inner self, and whether it's an angel guiding you or whatever, to me, the soul is about the afterlife. Yes. So, spirit and soul can see a difference. But you did talk about God and Yes. And the person who really leads us is God. Basically, what I would really want to say to you is what is your own thoughts on, on the
0: soul? Right. Okay. Well, I'm going to say it as I would express it. I believe to every human being there are four components. There's a body, a mind, a heart, and spirit. And spirit is consciousness or awareness. It is that which is aware of the body, aware of the mind, aware of the heart. It is not led by others. It is not subject to defect. It is your pure essence. And leadership does not apply to it. Because spirit is equal in all, there is no possibility of leadership. Leadership is between unequals. So a general leads a private. A managing director leads an assistant manager. But where there's equality, you cannot have leadership. So I think, yes, there is spirit but it doesn't come into this talk because leadership doesn't apply to spirit. So why would we have philosophy and leadership? It's because ordinarily we're very much aware of our bodies. So you think you're sitting there and you think I'm standing here. That's very obvious to you because there's body consciousness. There's also mind consciousness. You might be thinking, well, I don't agree with a word he said or it's all very confusing or whatever. And there could be heart consciousness where... I should have really stayed in and watched that film. (laughs) The vampire film would have been far more entertaining. So there's heart consciousness. We're normally aware of the body, mind and heart. But we're rarely aware of that which is behind body, mind and heart. When body, mind and heart are used properly, or purified or whatever way you want to phrase it, suddenly you become aware of that fourth element. That which is always present, always aware. It is that which is aware that the mind is confused without being confused itself. It's aware that the heart is troubled without being troubled itself. And it's aware that the body is ill without suffering any illness itself. And so, the purpose of a talk such as Philosophy and Leadership is to help us to lead our own bodies, minds and hearts so that the awareness of my true self can arise. And then secondly, so that we can be aware how to play our role in society. What true leadership is, and if we happen to find ourselves in leadership, how we should employ it in society. So that's what I would say.
3: Thank you. You explained it very well.
0: Yes, anybody else? If you don't ask questions, you'll have to get out of the way. Um, Mr. Mulhall, I'd just like to know your opinion on on the new President of the United States. Do you feel that he is a man that will give us inspiration and hope and good leadership for times that we have now? This is a personal opinion, so what it's worth is another matter. I think it's very obvious that he has remarkable charisma. Remarkable charisma. He is a great command of the English language and a stunning delivery to match. So he is capable of uplifting people with his words. Whether there is the necessary underlying wisdom to uplift the world, I'm not sure. Now, I don't doubt it because I have no basis to doubt it, but I've also no proof that it exists. If I was to look say, just in a very limited way, look financially, to look at the measures which have been undertaken since he has come to power. I'm not convinced that the way forward for the world is to restore us to where we were. Which seems to me to be the primary motive of all governments. All governments are trying to get us back on track. I believe we're on the wrong track, and the worst thing in the world for us would be to get back on it. (laughs) Right, <laughs> We don't want to get back on this track. So the idea of persuading banks to lend us more money when we're already over-borrowed, to me, is heinous. It's like asking us to be consumer slaves to an economy. Asking us to be greedy so that production may be maintained. When I listen to what America is doing, and it's not confined to America, I'm not sure whether there's a a fundamental appreciation that the way we live is excessive, or the way we live in the West is excessive, absolutely excessive. And that what we have to learn is how to live a measured life, which the Shankaracharya defined as everything necessary without any deprivation. I don't think that's the message. You know, I don't think Barack Obama or any leader is giving that message. That every one of us needs to take a look at our lives and determine what is necessary. Without any sense of deprivation now. But what is necessary? And I think it's an awful lot less than what we have. You know, he's a very young president and he's very young in office you know, in the sense of there, a number of months. So it'll be very interesting. But he certainly has the potential. I mean, he would give you hope. Whether he fulfills the hope or not, well, time will tell. But he certainly gives you hope. Thank you for that. You know, and by the way, I think he's absolutely essential to the world in the sense that John F. Kennedy, for a while, gave hope to the world. And it's a long time since we've had a leader anywhere in the world that has given us any hope. I'll settle for hope at this stage. (laughs) Yes, anybody else?
3: I suppose my question is how do you practice leadership? I mean, you've set out a lot of points and very incisive observations and that, but just for the individual, kind of as I walk out the door and say, in a work situation or in a family situation, how do you practice it? What are the ground rules, in a
0: sense? I'm going to give you the notes. (laughs) uh, Looking for a few bullet points. (laughs) yes, Yes. I think, in summary, the Shankaracharya's answer is the best answer I've ever heard. Where he said, there are three factors. Purity of thought, availability of enthusiasm, and treat everybody as yourself. Give them what you would want yourself. And he said these are the three factors necessary to lead any institution. So he wasn't just talking about spiritual institutions. And what I have taken from that is purity of thought is that you are acting for the welfare of all. And I think that's a very practical thing. In business you can act for the owners or you can act for the employees. Or you can be acting for the customers or you can act for the suppliers. Or you can act for everybody, in everybody's best interests. So purity of thought, where you do not seek gain for yourself at the expense of another. There's nothing wrong with gain for yourself, but not at the expense of another. So having a ghetto blaster going down Grafton Street, because you adore heavy metal, at the expense of the peace of others, is not valid. If you can find a nuclear bunker that you can play that music in, that's fine. So, purity of thought is the first thing. The second thing is availability of enthusiasm. The thing about a leader is, a leader has excess energy. That means that they have more energy than they need for themselves. And what they do is they give that energy to others. And the way out is through enthusiasm. Some of Hitler's speeches at these marches, that's not enthusiasm, that's fanaticism. What the Shankaracharya defined enthusiasm was, he said, first of all, it needs to be mild enthusiasm. And he said, it's like a spring. If you press a spring down, and then you let it go, it regains its former shape. It loses nothing by the pressing down. The way Churchill put it was that success was moving from failure to failure, without loss of enthusiasm. (laughs) Now that's what enthusiasm is. Where the events of life do not defeat you. You're riding the waves. When people see that in a leader, then they become confident. They have faith in themselves. So you lend your energy with conviction, all these wonderful things. And you energize those who you happen to be responsible for. So now you have purity of thought, availability of enthusiasm. And the third thing is you mustn't see yourself as separate from anybody. So the fact that you hold a position of leadership, as I said, doesn't mean that you are a superior being. There's equality of being, albeit inequality of function. So you must treat everybody as you would wish to be treated yourself. Let's say you're in business and you're a manager and you have some people under you and they are not behaving correctly and you need to correct their behaviour. Well, you speak to them as you would wish to be spoken to if you found yourself in exactly the same position. And if you do those three, then you are a natural leader. You don't need to do all sorts of courses and things like that. Those three will fulfil it. Thank you. But I give you the notes as well. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> to be sure, to be sure.
1: Thank you for your clarity of thought. <laughs> Some
0: of the things that you said created a bit of a dilemma in my brain yes. insofar as you said that the best leaders should be reluctant to come forward. So how are they to become leaders? They're asked. They're asked by the general population. That's the point. They don't seek office. Their ambition is not to lead, but they are willing to serve if called upon. And so it's up to you know, the ordinary person, the man on the street, to see the leader, to see the leadership, and call upon that. Ask that person, will you do the job? little boys and girls do when they're playing football or games somebody has to be captain somebody has to make the decisions so normally they work it out they select somebody you don't grab and say I'm demanding to be the captain that's the last person you want because then they're interested in the function for themselves what you want is somebody who's interested in you and if they are reluctant then you know that there's nothing in the position for them If I can say it from personal example, the least attractive role in the world, in my experience, is to be head of the school of philosophy. You want to be insane to want it. But what actually happens is that when a leader is selected, it is because people say, this is the person we would like to have as head of the school. And you take it. And you say goodbye to your life. (laughs) But you do it because there's a job to be done. That's as simple as that. And that's the way it should be approached. There's a job to be done. Leadership demands tremendous sacrifice. It's the end of comfort. You know, living in a little comfort zone. Because you now have to care for bigger and bigger numbers. It's like the change from being a single man to being, say, a married man or a woman. Suddenly, you find yourself wheeling prams and going to circuses and and doing all sorts of things that you wouldn't do if you were single. So leadership is all about sacrifice. There's nothing in it for you. And the person who realizes that, then that's the person to ask. But you have to ask them. So in a way you could say that the selection of the aristocrat is through a democratic process. You could say that. I'm not a historian by any stretch of the imagination at all. But my understanding of the English system of inheritance was to the eldest son. And so titles were passed on. In the Celtic tradition, it was the rule of the best. So if you were the chieftain of a particular clan, It didn't mean that your son or daughter necessarily became the next chieftain. Let's say you were the chieftain and you were dying. They would look to the best. It's also, by the way, how the Shankracharyas are chosen, which is a position uh, that's held, a position of leadership or spiritual leadership. Nobody applies for the job. Nobody goes looking for it. I don't think for the Pope you don't put down your own name sort of thing, I'm sure. At least I hope you don't. (laughs) Uh, Other people decide that you're the best for the job. And there's tremendous protection in that. Through my life, and I think most of us here would say, that we would have recognised people who, as they put it, were the best Taoiseach that we never had. Yes, exactly. Yeah, because at the time they were ripe for leadership, there was other people who may have been Machiavellian or yes. whatever. And so a reluctant or a shy leader, being reluctant is not much help to his people, is it? No, he would never turn down. He or she would never turn down the role. The way I would put you is this, that what you and I should do, Is creating an environment where real leaders would like to lead. I mean, would you like to lead, you lot? (laughs) All the demands and everybody with little petty desires of, I want my taxation rates brought down and I want you to tax other people. I want X, Y, Z for my county, but I don't want it for other counties. It's very hard for a good leader to emerge when people are so petty and so selfish. So I think that we could make it easier for great leaders to emerge. I'm talking about great leaders. I mean a person who goes beyond the state. What we want are leaders that the world will remember. We need world leaders, not country leaders, at this stage. People who can inspire a generation. At this stage, we don't have a person who can unite the rich and the poor, or the undeveloped countries and the developed countries. These are the sort of people we need. We need world-class people. Now, an interesting thing, and I've used this example before, if you take Gandhi in the film, where he was going through Peter Maritzburg, and if you remember in the film, he had a first-class ticket, which he had bought in London. And so he was travelling in the whites-only carriage because he had this ticket which he'd bought from London. Anyway, the train conductor comes along, sees him, and tells him that he can't stay there. Gandhi says, but I have a valid ticket. Now, Gandhi at this stage is dressed like a Westerner. Anyway, the next scene is you see him picking himself off the railway platform as he's flung out, despite the fact that he has a valid ticket. The next scene, he's dressed like an Indian. Now, Gandhi was a third-class Englishman and a world-class Indian. So the first thing you do is you need to become a great Irishman or woman. And from that, you become a great man or woman. That's what the world needs. We really do need excellent leaders. And the marvellous thing about a leader is that they can uplift a generation. So we only need one. To be a great leader, you need to serve great ideals. So Mandela, I'm going to ascribe this to him, his capacity for forgiveness inspires billions. Gandhi and his harmlessness inspires billions. You only have to have one great virtue. And a generation will follow you. So you can all pick one and turn it into greatness. Again, what the Shankaracharya said is what great men and women do, the masses emulate. And every generation will have its heroes. Nobody's ever going to be without heroes. And if you look at the young people now and what heroes they pick, it's because we're not supplying any heroes. So it always comes back to here. Yes, anybody
3: else? I was at a talk recently and I just heard somebody talking about I want to be the leader, I'm sure you heard it, I want to be the leader, I want to be the leader. His friends or whatever were so fed up with him that they finally made him the leader. And then he turned around and he said to them, what will I do now?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so... It's a bit like that. Yes, thank you. It's a bit like that. Yes, anybody else? This lady here. Has there
1: ever been historically an incident of a society surviving without a leader successfully in which everyone was independent harmoniously?
0: It's not in what we would call recorded history. But there are descriptions of a sequence of ages. I don't know whether you've ever read any of these, but it talks about the Golden Age, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, and the Iron Age. Anyway, we are now said to be living in the Iron Age, and incapable of leading ourselves, so therefore needing leadership and needing lots of law. If I just may divert for a second. If I asked you all to name the laws of the road, travelling on the road in a motor vehicle, we don't know them. If I said to you, what is the millimetre of tyre thread you're meant to have? We haven't a clue. There's so many laws and we don't know them. And the reason why there's so many laws is because we won't drive reasonably. That's all that's required, that you drive with reasonable care and consideration for fellow travellers. But because we won't, we come up with 25,000 laws and we can't remember most of them. So, this is the Kali Yugo, this Iron Age. And again, just to say, Plato said, in democracy, you get this proliferation of laws and also proliferation of lawyers. And the proliferation of lawyers is not the product of the love of law, but the love of criminality. It's criminality which produces lawyers. So never want to be a lawyer. You don't want to be the product of criminals. Anyway, there's said to be a golden age. And in the golden age, man was self-governing. There was no government. But it was a long, 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 long time ago. It's now in mythology rather than in history. Lots of mythology from different traditions refer to these golden ages.
1: Could it be a role of the school of philosophy to go some way towards recreating that? Is one of the requirements
0: of that consciousness? Absolutely. It is all to do with consciousness. And it is one of the functions of the school of philosophy. But just to say this to you, that again, some of the great sages from India have been asked about this. And what they say is, you don't have to wait till the world... Returns to the golden age. You can live in it at any time you want to. You as an individual. You can be a woman of truth. Who treats everybody as yourself. Who is not overwhelmed by desires and greed and anger and all these things. And if you do that, then you live in the golden age. Now, others may behave appallingly around you. But because you are of such a level of consciousness, you're unaffected by their behavior. And the fact of the matter is being unaffected, then others will seek to emulate. You know a film when Harry met Sally? You know the restaurant scene? We should all be like the lady who says, I'll have whatever she's having. (laughs) Right? Now, the trouble is, we don't have the examples. That's what we need. We need the example so we all would say, I'll have whatever she's having. Let's say I'm a father. So, as a father, if I could express a really happy, contented life, then my children would want it. That's what they would want. So, we need to do it. We need to develop it and express it in whatever way we can. And then others will seek. To emulate it. And again, I've told this story before. Now, it's a small story and it's from my life. I used to advise two men in business. We used to meet, for, let's say, every fortnight or every month. And there was a meeting coming up on, let's say, a Wednesday. And I said to them, I can't attend. So you two go ahead with the meeting. And both of them said no. That if I wasn't going to be there, they weren't going to have the meeting. I said, but look, let's look at the agenda. There's nothing particularly significant to decide on or that. Go ahead with the meeting without me. And they both said no. So I tried to push it. I said, look, this is ridiculous. It shouldn't be dependent on me. Have the meeting. And one man said to me, he said, no, we won't have the meeting. We're more honest when you're in the room. Now that's what you want. That in your own small way, that people behave differently in your presence. And everybody can do that. And then ideally, they also behave well when you're not in their presence. We can all raise our own standards. We can all become more naturally aristocratic. And rely on the power of example. So, if the golden age is not going to come for x hundreds of thousands or millions of years, so what? One final question. Yes, absolutely.
1: And I know it probably requires a very long answer that
0: you don't have time for,
1: but could you tell me in your opinion how we fell from grace from the golden age?
0: Again, the Shankaracharya answered. it may not be the most satisfying answer in the world in the sense that you could push it further and further. He said, Somewhere, someday, somebody wanted happiness for himself, irrespective of the happiness of others. That's where it began. You see it in a very small way with children. They play with things and they put them down. And when they put them down, they forget them. Is that all right? But then what happens, they learn this word, mine. That's mine. And when that comes into existence, the idea of private property, then comes into existence the idea of holding out of use. So what happens is, we make it the little boy, and he's playing with his train set, and he's very happy playing with his train set, And his teddy is behind him, and he's unaware that Teddy is there. So he's completely happy in himself, playing with his train set. And then he looks around, and his sister has picked up Teddy, and is now really having a lot of fun with Teddy. So what he does is he grabs it from her and says, it's mine. And he sticks it under his arm as he still tries to work the train set. So he's getting nothing from it himself but he will not let others use it. And that's the horrors of private property. It leads to abuse. And you watch children I mean in the end he sticks a scissors through Teddy and takes out all the eyes and ears and things like that. And if you ask him why, why do you do it? He says because it's mine. I have the right to. When a child is very, very small If it goes down the street and it sees a bicycle, it brings it home with it. This is not a thief in the making. This is simply the child sees the universe as his. The entire universe belongs to him. And what we do is we educate him into thinking, no, the vast, vast, vast majority doesn't belong to you. You've got Teddy and a train set. That's it. (laughs) Right. And when you're reduced from the entire universe to a teddy and a train set, you become very mean because you've only got two things. And that's what happens. We move from universality to misery with this idea that that's my little bit. It's in fencing off your little farm of possessions, you cut yourself off from the vast majority. And we do it with possessions and we do it with love. So the child initially loves everybody. But he learns that he he should really just love brother and sister and mother and father. And from about 16 onwards, he should go on some insane search for somebody that might spend the rest of their lives with them. That's it. Started off loving everybody. It's a story of love for all to love for about five or six. And in the end, you have to get a dog to get some affection. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> last, last question. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: That sense of lack that you were speaking about there.
0: That sense of? Lack. Yes.
1: It's a sort of a psychological need in people who have experienced this sort of tendency to constantly searching for other What they're searching for is the leader in themselves. And I project that onto other people. It?
0: Absolutely. When will Really, the starting point is excellent parenting. That's the starting point. When you hold your child for the first time, you know that it's pure, perfect and complete. You know that. You know in the deepest recesses of your heart that this child is pure, perfect and complete. You should never forget that. And you should never teach a child that it's anything less than pure, perfect and complete. And the more that knowledge stays with you, the less you will have need of things to fill you out. You'll enjoy everything. You'll enjoy use without possession. The way Mr. McLaren put it is, if you possess things, in the end you will be possessed by them. So have the use of the universe and possess nothing. Now, possession doesn't mean that you don't have legal title, by the way. It may be very necessary that there is legal title in order to operate in this world. But don't consider them as possessions. Consider them as things that you have the use of. Again, just say that in farming, and I think it's still true to a large extent, but it may have been more true in times past, it was very obvious as a farmer that you had the use of the land for your lifetime. And you had no right to destroy it. That you would pass it on to the next generation Ideally, in better shape than you had inherited it. Now, we should pass on the world in better shape than we inherited it. We should pass on everything in better shape. And then we will have lived well. Then we will have been natural aristocrats. So, that's it. Thank you very much.